This morning, as hopefully you know, we are beginning a sermon series through the book of Galatians. So we'll begin this morning by looking at the first ten verses of this letter of Paul to the church in Galatia. Galatia is what we now know as central Turkey. So it was the name of a Roman province that kind of stretches north to south, right in the middle of that uh, area. And it was a place where Paul had visited and planted churches uh, in, one, in his missionary journey. So you can read about that in Acts 13 and 14. So after he plants the church, some trouble arises, some false teachers come in. And this letter represents Paul's attempt to bring correction to what those false teachers are teaching. We don't have a manuscript from what the false teachers were teaching. All we have is Paul's response. So we've piece together the best we can what these false teachers were saying, and it appears they were saying that Jesus was not enough. These Galatians not only needed needed to believe the gospel, but they needed to add add to their faith obedience to the rituals of the law of Moses. They needed to be circumcised. They needed perhaps to observe the dietary laws. And Paul is writing this letter very passionately and urgently to say no. That is a false gospel, and he's here to urge the Galatians to hold fast to the true gospel. So with that, let's read the first ten verses, Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given you, you can turn to page 972 to find this reading. Listen to God's word. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This is God's word. Our passage is divided up into two parts. We have this greeting and a warning. Scholars will note that really in terms of Paul's letters, we kind of have only a part of a greeting. There's a part that's missing. The part that's missing is when he expresses thanks for the church. In place of his thanksgiving for Galatians, the Galatian churches, we have this severe warning. So this text is this greeting, his partial greeting, and Paul's warning. But even the greeting is more than just a greeting. It's an argument. An argument that there is only one true gospel. And it's the gospel that Jesus, the risen Christ, entrusted to Paul. Paul wants the Galatian churches to see there's only one message that delivers from death. Only one message that delivers us from this present evil age. 
And it's the message that God has revealed through his apostles. So he presents this argument and then he presents this warning, this urgent, passionate warning. We see he, he uses extreme language in his warning, speaking of, of curses upon those who preach false gospels. He uses this extreme language because he wants to, to wake up these Galatian Christians and to persuade them not to follow these false teachers. So his message here in these opening verses is that we should believe the one and only true gospel, the gospel of the Son of God who gave himself for our sins. And it's a warning that to turn to any other gospel is to turn your back on God and his grace. To organize our time this morning, we're going to look at two reasons why we should hold fast to the gospel and then look at Paul's warning. So we should hold fast to the gospel because it is the apostolic gospel. That's the first reason. Hold fast to the gospel because it is the apostolic gospel. Second, we should hold fast to the gospel because it's God's gospel. And then Paul warns us that turning away from this gospel is to turn away from the only way of salvation. So let's look first at this first reason for holding fast to the gospel. The only true gospel is the apostolic gospel. He always, at the beginning of his letters, introduces himself as Paul, an apostle. But here in Galatia, he, again, he adds some extra stuff. He adds this explanation that he's not an apostle from man or through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul's forced to argue like this because these teachers who've come into Galatia, probably outsiders, they are turning their argument into a personal attack against Paul. He refers to them as some who trouble you. And it appears these troublers are asserting that Paul's preaching was missing something. And they've, again, taken to attacking him personally. Later on in chapter 1, he'll have to state, I'm not lying. And it, it seems he had to say this because they were saying, Paul is lying. And it seems maybe what they were saying he's lied about is, is where he's gotten his gospel. They're saying, well, he's, he's really just presenting a corrupted version of what Peter and John and James were preaching. He got it from them and he's messed it up. But we're here and we're telling you what Peter and John and James really believe. And so Paul is here from the outset saying, no, I didn't get my gospel from Peter and Paul and James. I got it from God himself. I'm an apostle from God, from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's establishing his apostolic credentials. Now, we, we don't really think much about apostolic credentials today. It's not something that is high on our priority list to define. If we think about apostles at all, maybe we think, well, I guess they were like the original 12, you know, the, the first ones. But, of course, if Paul can be an apostle, that definition does not quite work, right? Paul was not there among the, the 12 original people. We don't know where he was in the Gospels. Uh, by, by the book of Acts, we assume he was already opposing Christ even then, but he wasn't one of the 12. So what does it mean to call someone an apostle? And how can Paul claim to be one? Well, an apostle is someone specially commissioned or appointed to represent somebody else in an official capacity. There was a Jewish idea uh, 
that was taken into the word of apostle even before Christ came. And this Jewish idea that was translated by the Greek word apostle is kind of like the modern day power of attorney. So if you grant someone power of attorney for you, you grant them authority to enter into contracts for you. They can conduct business. They might be able to sign financial commitments or they even arrange your end of life care. You give that person power. They, they have a pretty broad range, but still limited authority. Well, the apostle would have been an extremely powerful power of attorney. They had a broad range of authority such that it could have been said at this time, a man's apostle is the same as himself. So Jesus picks up this idea and he appoints his own apostles to represent him on earth after he's ascended to heaven. The definition then of an apostle is a man specially called and appointed by the resurrected Christ to be his representative for the sake of the gospel. One of my seminary professors, Richard Gaffin, put it this way. An apostle is a deputized, personal exemplification of Christ's authority. So when Paul says he's an apostle, he's claiming that kind of unique authority. He's saying that the risen Christ has specially called and appointed him to this role as apostle. So that's who apostles were, but what did they do? We need to see that apostles were granted by Jesus a unique one-time place in salvation history to help establish the church. Throughout the New Testament, we see the church pictured as a building. Christ crucified and risen is the, the chief cornerstone of that building. But his apostles also lay the foundation for the building that becomes the church. And they do this by proclaiming the gospel. The church is that building, those people who hear the apostolic gospel and believe. Jesus himself starts off using this word picture when he says to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So in Matthew, Jesus says these words immediately after Peter has just confessed for the first time that Jesus is the Christ. Based upon that confession, Jesus announces, I'm going to build my church on you. So Christ here is the one who builds the church. He's the builder, but he does his building work through his, his selected agents, his general contractors, these apostles who proclaim the truth of the gospel. Now it's important to note that the New Testament does not ascribe this apostolic authority to Peter alone which is what some of our Roman Catholic friends might say. This foundation-laying work is something that Christ gives to all the apostles, including Paul. So Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.20 that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church's foundation, but that this foundation is also built upon the apostles and prophets. The apostles were sent by Christ then to carry out this foundation-laying work, beginning in Jerusalem, as we see in Acts 1, and spreading out through Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The way that these apostles were to carry out their foundation laying work is by preaching the gospel. They were the authorized preachers and interpreters of the gospel. In the, in the Bible, God never gives us naked revelation. He always reveals himself and then he interprets for us what that revelation means. So you might think of the whole scripture as the Old Testament God promising to reveal himself, 
the Gospels where Christ is revealed, and then the, the epistles is God's divine interpretation of what he's done. And the apostles provide that divine interpretation of what God has done. Paul speaks of his foundation-laying work in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 9 and 10. He says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace God has given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Paul says he's very careful to build on Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. In Acts 15, when a dispute arises about how, whether Gentile Christians should be circumcised, the matter is decided by this gathering in Jerusalem that features Peter, James, and Paul, these three apostles. This shows us one way the apostles fulfilled their foundation-laying work. Their, their role as gospel representatives, gospel interpreters. During this foundational period in the church's life, they gave this crucial guidance to the churches about how to apply the gospel. So when Paul begins his letter this way, by talking about his apostolic credentials, he's saying, first and foremost, God and his son Jesus have called me to this work. My authority doesn't derive from any human leader. It's the Lord Jesus the one whom God raised from the dead, he's the one who called me to preach the gospel to you. He gave me a special calling, we'll find out later, as the apostle to the Gentiles. So Paul is making an argument from authority from the start. Why should you believe what I preach to you, Galatians? Because I was sent by God himself. I'm on a mission from God. Jesus, the God-man who died and rose again, appeared to me, Paul is saying, and that's why I'm a Christian, and that's where I learned the gospel, and he's the one who sent me to preach to you Galatians. Paul's making this claim about authority and his special relationship to the risen Christ. It's important to note here the emphasis on the resurrection. So Paul at the outset is saying that God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead, and it's the same Lord Jesus Christ who's made Paul an apostle. Jesus Christ being raised from the dead is this great sign that a new age has dawned. This age that's, that the prophets promised that would be marked by resurrection and the giving of the Spirit. Paul says that when Jesus Christ came and gave himself, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age in verse 4. In other words, Paul is saying something earth-shattering has happened in the death and resurrection of Christ. This earth-shattering thing has disrupted the reign of sin and death. So much so that if you're saved, you're kind of transported out of this present evil age, in a sense. You belong to a different age, an age marked by the revelation of the, of the Son of God, by Jesus Christ raised, by the Spirit of God, by new creation, as he'll say at the end of the letter. And this is so important for Galatians, again, because of what these false teachers were saying. These false teachers are trying to convince them that they could have kind of the secret of the Christian life by law-keeping. And they were saying, this is the missing component to your spirituality. If you, if you just will get circumcised, you'll unlock the magic key to your Christian life. This sounds really good because the Old Covenant, these laws, they have an impressive pedigree, right? They've been around for, for centuries. God himself revealed the law. But Paul is shouting, no, the law cannot introduce you to this 
new age in the spirit. The law has never been able to break the power of sin and death. It is only Christ crucified and resurrected. He is the only one that can deliver you from the power of sin and death from this present evil age. The law of Moses can't do that. And the God who gave the law is now the God who has raised Jesus from the dead. And he's appeared to me and he's made me an apostle. So Paul is in effect saying, Galatian friends, there is no power for you in obeying those Jewish rituals. Only the risen Christ saves. It's the risen Christ and God the Father who've commissioned me to preach to you. And so hold fast to this apostolic gospel. Now, we don't have a personal relationship with Paul. We might feel like there's not a lot at stake for us in Paul's apostolic authority. We don't have any teachers here among us in the church trying to convince us not to believe Paul, thankfully. So we can admit there's a lot of distance between our situation and the Galatian church's situation. But I want to argue that we should take Paul's apostolic claim seriously. We should pay attention to the gospel revealed by the apostles, the ones that Jesus specially commissioned. They were Jesus' hand-picked, authorized representatives and interpreters of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the way that we pay attention to the apostolic ministry is by doing what we're doing right now by reading and studying and applying the New Testament scriptures, by believing the gospel that's revealed to us in the pages of the New Testament. It's okay for me to say even the New Testament right here, not because the New Testament is more true than the old or more inspired, but it's in the pages of the New Testament where Christ is fully and clearly revealed. It's in the pages of the New Testament where we understand the meaning of the Old Testament. And it's here, in this gospel, recorded for us in the New Testament, and here and only here, where we find forgiveness of sins and salvation from this present evil age. This is a crucial point, because it's God's gospel revealed here. That's what Paul's saying. This is not man's gospel. I didn't get this authority by any man. I got this authority from God. It's God's own message. God the Father and God the Son They've revealed it to us, apostles, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the message that the apostles proclaimed and that the Galatians were to hold fast to, and that we are as well. So this gives us two marching orders as New Testament Christians. First, we should be students of the New Testament, as I said, because this is where Christ is fully revealed to us and where the Old Testament finds its interpretation. We should give ourselves to studying this apostolic teaching. An example of this, maybe just go back a couple of weeks to our sermon on Psalm 2. We can't really understand what it means for Jesus to be called the Son of God and the Anointed One without the way that the book of Acts and Hebrews interprets those things for us. So become students of the New Testament. Become students of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's revealed to us there. That's our first marching order. The second marching order is closely related We should evaluate all that we hear about Christ by the apostolic witness, by the New Testament. So when we hear the gospel taught, we should measure what we hear by what the scriptures say. In verse 6, Paul says he's astonished by these Galatians because they've so quickly turned to a different gospel. They've turned away from his apostolic preaching that they received, and they're turning towards a false gospel. And, of course, he pronounces that curse upon anyone who preaches the false gospel. 
We should recognize, though, that the Galatians aren't the only ones who can be fooled by false gospels. We can be fooled as well. And how often do you hear about some dynamic, engaging teacher who's got his, his own spin on things? He's not telling us to observe the Jewish law, perhaps, but he's saying what you really need is Jesus plus my approach to marriage and family. That'll be the key. Or Jesus plus my take on politics and culture. Or he might say Jesus plus my secrets to financial success. This is the true Christian life. Is Jesus plus what I've got for you. These false gospels often affirm the true gospel. They preach Christ, but then they distort Christ by adding to Christ. In Galatians, the troublemakers, again, were adding circumcision and works of the law to the gospel. They were saying to Christians, it's not enough to believe in Christ crucified. You must also add on these works to be righteous in God's eyes. And the entire letter is written to vigorously combat that false gospel. So Paul will say in two, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And now he says it two more times. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Do you get Paul's point? The apostolic gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is the only true gospel. The only way to stand before God as righteous is by faith in the crucified Son of God. Perhaps the more insidious false gospels that we are tempted to believe are the ones that we come up with ourselves. So we say to ourselves, to be right with God, I've got to trust in Jesus and have a daily quiet time. To be right with God, I should try to make sure my life looks exactly the same as or better than my successful Christian friend. We're not adding Jewish rituals to the gospel but we are adding our own idolatries of perfection and self-sufficiency to the gospel. Paul would have a see when we do that, we are forsaking the apostolic gospel. We're forsaking the gospel Jesus revealed to his apostles and recorded in the New Testament. The gospel of Christ, handed down through the apostles, is the only foundation to build our lives on. The gospel that saves is not something that we arrive at on our own, we can't look to ourselves to find it. It's God's gospel, his message revealed by his apostles. And that's our second point. This is God's gospel. We should hold fast to it. We should not forsake it because it's God's gospel. When Paul makes his greeting to the Galatian churches, he extends to them, as he always does, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, he can't stop there in Galatians. He has to add to that. He adds to that by telling us a bit about what the Lord Jesus has done for us. So look at verse 4. After he says the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see all that's packed into Paul's greeting? We have the work of Jesus Christ and God the Father. It's Jesus giving himself according to the will of God. 
This is God's work. It's God's gospel. It's God's idea, and it's what God accomplishes. So he offers us peace with God, and he draws our attention to to the way that people can have peace with God through Christ giving himself for us. In those few words that, that Jesus gave himself for us, for our sins, Paul says a, a lot of stuff, doesn't he? he? Doesn't he lump himself in with them, our sins? We're all sinners, he's saying. We've all broken God's law. We've all obeyed our own rules. We're all guilty before God. Paul's saying this about himself, this Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, and he's saying this about the Galatians. We're all sinners before God. But this short phrase is really more about God's grace than it is our sin. He says that Jesus gave himself. He gave himself for our sins. Jesus is the glorious Lord. He's the Son of God who took on flesh to give himself for us. He was glorious in eternity past, but he became a man. He willingly became a man so that he could die, to die in our place. He laid down his life. Paul has already told us in verse 1 that he's the Lord whom God has raised from the dead. So here again, in just a few verses, we have revealed Christ given for us and Christ resurrected for us. Christ given for the sake of our sin and to deliver us from the power of this evil age and to raise us up to new life. Paul reveals here the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus giving himself by the will of God. Again, this work of salvation is God's idea and God's work. Christ gave himself according to the will of God our Father who raised him from the dead. Just think about that. According to the will, the desire, the want to of God our Father. Why did God the Father want to give, him, give the Son for us? Why did the Father have this idea to send the Son? Was it because he owed something to us? Was it because we're so great or we've done something to earn salvation? No. The will of God the Father. It's all because of his love. Ephesians 1.5 says that it is according to the good pleasure of his will. It pleased the Father to love us while we were still sinners. It pleased the Father to love us and send the Son to die for us. And it pleased the Son to come and to lay down his life. The gospel is the good news of the Father's love and the Son's grace. The Father's will and the Son's will work in perfect harmony to save sinners and to deliver us from this present evil age. In our passage, the Holy Spirit is not mentioned, but we know that Jesus accomplished his work because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know that he ascended into heaven, according to John, so that he could send the Spirit. And Paul will teach us in Galatians that he redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons and by the indwelling of the Spirit cry out to our Father, Abba, Father. So the gospel is the good news of the Father's love and the Son's grace and the fellowship and comfort of the Holy Spirit. 
It is God's gospel through and through. We hear this every week when we, or every other week, when we quote 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The love of God and the grace of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's God's gospel. And God's gospel turns us into God's people. Because we are God's people, we should hold fast to God's gospel. This is the message of God's saving work. And there's no other message that turns sinners into worshipers of God. The message of the law can't do that. Only God's gospel does that. Paul says that the true gospel is the one that he preached to the Galatians. And in verse 8, he says it's the gospel that the Galatians received. Now, even though verses 8 and 9 are formally a curse pronounced on those who preach false gospels, those false teachers, we should recognize that these pronouncements of curses are written in a letter that's addressed to the Galatian Christians. It's almost as if the Galatian Christians are overhearing Paul's curse. Well, why would Paul do that? Well, this is a part of Paul's attempt to persuade them. Do you see where their gospel leads? Don't follow it. His words are also saying, do you see what you're, you're listening to? You received from me the true gospel. Now what are you receiving? He uses these extreme words to wake the Galatians up to the fact that they're in danger of abandoning the only message that can save They're in danger of abandoning God's gospel. God's people are here in danger of forsaking God's gospel. So if the message of the gospel is God's power unto salvation, where does that leave those who abandon this gospel? It leaves you powerless in the grip of sin. To forsake the gospel is to forsake the will of God. It's to reject the gift of the Son. It's to grieve and resist the Spirit of God. Many have noted that the Galatian church could not have been very old when Paul sent this letter, only a matter of a few years, maybe even only a year after they were first established. He notes in verse 6 how quickly they're turning to this true, to, from the true gospel to the false. And yet, even though these were young Christians, Paul holds them accountable for discerning and identifying truth from error. This letter is not merely addressed to the the leaders of the churches of Galatia. He doesn't write to the Galatian elders. He writes to all the churches, the churches as a whole. Each hearer of this letter is responsible to evaluate what they hear. And no matter, he says, whether the teacher you're hearing from is me or an angel or anybody else, you're to understand, are they teaching God's gospel? Are they teaching the true gospel? And if not, you're to reject it. One way we apply this principle in our church is by recognizing that you, the congregation, you have authority over our church's statement of faith. So when we first became a church and we adopted our constitution, we voted on that. And part of what we were voting on was a statement of faith that we all agree to. When we have new members join, we ask them to sign that statement of faith. If we want to change that statement of faith, I can't do it by myself. And Tim and I together, we could vote as your elders to recommend a change, but we can't change it. It's a change that only the congregation can make, only the members agreeing with each other that something new needs to be added or something needs to be clarified. Only that way can it be changed. 
in a related way, you're responsible for what you hear in our church. So if I were to preach a false gospel, if I were to begin unrepentantly denying the divinity of Christ or saying you're saved by works, it would be your responsibility under God to fire me. Now certainly the Lord will hold me accountable in the day of judgment for what I've taught, but in the meantime, he intends to work through you, his church, to hold their teachers accountable. We're to test everything and hold fast to what is good. Paul shows us here in this letter to the Galatians that Christ has invested in the church authority for our doctrine. He's shown us in his word what the gospel is, and he holds us responsible for what we hear. Now, this principle goes far beyond voting on statements of faith. The gospel of God is meant to permeate our life together. The gospel is God's word of life that we have to offer to each other. So to be the church should be to fellowship around the gospel, to remind each other of the Father's love. When we sin, we should point each other to the Son's grace. When we suffer, we should minister to each other the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Because we are God's people, we should be gospel people. And when we become occupied with other things, we're beginning to wander away from our reason for existence. God has created us by his gospel. God's gospel is what creates God's people. And if we would be God's people, we must hold fast to God's gospel. So we've looked at two reasons for holding fast to the gospel. It's the apostolic gospel and it's God's gospel. Now let's turn to the warning. Paul's warning is that turning away from the gospel is turning away from the only way of salvation. Why does he issue this warning in such severe terms? Well, there's at least two reasons. First, Paul uses this extreme language because of, the, of what's at stake. He wants the Galatian Christians to know this is what's at stake if you turn away. He says that to turn to this different gospel is the same thing as deserting God who called them in the grace of Christ, in verse 6. God's grace is his gracious self-giving of himself to sinners in the gospel. It is undeserved favor for sinners. If sinners abandon the grace of God, we have no hope. And of course, he calls down these curses on those who preach another gospel. He makes sure we know that there really isn't any other gospel, right? He immediately clarifies that. Not that there is another, but there are these who want to distort the gospel. The warning that the preachers of the false gospel deserve God's curse holds, I think, a double meaning. It both tells us what they deserve, but it also tells us, about something, it tells us something about those who hear and receive and believe false gospels. The trajectory of those who turn away from the true gospel is to turn away from grace and to turn towards God's curse. So instead of saving people from the wrath of God, false gospels leave people condemned. This warning is urgent because eternal life and eternal hell are at stake. Paul's passionate warning here then shows us how seriously we should take the gospel. We should want to get it right. One of the reasons we did our evangelism class we did at the end of the spring was to make sure we get the gospel right. We want to be clear on what the gospel is so that when we present it, we're presenting the true gospel, 
and not some distortion of it. We should guard the gospel. We should seek to persuade others to believe it and, and warn those who are wandering from it. Of course, we also have to have discernment to know what is and is not a threat to the gospel. You know, throughout Paul's letters, he's often combating false teachers. He's often correcting the churches he's writing to. But he's not often calling down curses like he is in Galatians chapter 1. Paul is so passionate here because the very truth of the gospel is at stake. You might say these false teachers were blaspheming Christ by saying that Christ crucified was not sufficient for salvation. We need the wisdom and strength to confront Galatian heresies when they arise, and we need the wisdom to know that not every doctrinal problem is a Galatian heresy. It helps to remember again that Paul's language here in Galatians chapter 1 is addressed to these Galatian churches because he wants to persuade them not to go over. At least for some chunk of them, they've not yet bought into the false gospel. There's still hope that they can be kept from believing it. So Paul, Paul's purpose in his harsh language is to persuade, to persuade these Galatians to hold on to the true gospel. It's part of his rhetorical strategy to persuade the Galatian Christians to hold fast to the gospel by warning them in the extreme of where false gospels lead. And that leads us to the second reason for the warning. Paul wants the Galatian Christians to continue in the grace of Christ and God. Again, look at verses 6 and 7 to see what Paul says about the Galatians who are turning away from the gospel. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Again, Paul says that to turn to this different gospel is to desert him who called you in the grace of Christ. So if you've been following along with the argument, I think we understand him who called you to be God the Father. God the Father has called you in the grace of Christ. In the gospel, God offers his grace to us. The Christian life is supposed to be a life begun by grace, and it's supposed to be a life lived by grace. We've already started to understand what grace means when we think of how Christ gave himself for us. God's grace is God's giving himself to us through Christ. Christ gave himself to save us from our sins. And this tells us we could not save ourselves. We had no ability to do that. We could not erase our guilt. We could not escape God's judgment. But Christ, because of God's grace, gave himself as the substitute for sinners. By Christ's death and resurrection, God graces us who believe with salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. It's by grace that we have been saved. It's all of grace, God's gracious gift. So that's how we've begun. That's the only way to get into the Christian life. And Paul wants us now to continue in that grace. He'll say this in chapter 3. Did you begin by works of the flesh? Or did you begin by the Spirit and now you're trying to finish by works of the flesh? That's impossible. We are to continue living each day in the knowledge that God the Father loves us. We see the Father's love in that he sent the Son to die for us. 
And the Father's love and the Son's love is applied to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, what's the solution to sin in a Christian's life? It's God's grace. We don't try to cover up our sin or explain it away or, or make up for it. We, we bring it to God and repent of it. And we receive forgiveness of it. How do we grow in obedience and love? It's by God's grace. God indwells us by the Holy Spirit and he pours out his love into our hearts by the Spirit. And he ministers his word to us by the illumination of the Spirit. And so we grow in obedience to God by responding to his love for us. Paul says at the end of the letter that neither circumcision or uncircumcision counts for anything but faith working through love. We live by God's grace. How do we endure suffering? It's only by God's grace. We know in our times of, of deepest pain that God, our Father in heaven, loves us. And he allows nothing to come into our lives except that which is for our good and his glory. How do we have hope for the future? It's only by the grace of God. The grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. We look forward to life with God forever, not because of our good works, but because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We live in hope of future righteousness. Christians live by grace. Paul is pleading with the Galatians, continue in the grace of Christ that's been revealed to you. If we say to our Father, I no longer want all of these gifts you've offered me in Christ. Where does that leave us? If we say to Jesus, well, you got me on the right track, but I'm going to take it from here. We're deceiving ourselves. There is no Christian life apart from grace. To turn away from the gospel is to abandon life with God. It's to abandon life with God and exchange it for judgment from God. To attempt to live a life with God on our own good works is a total contradiction. It can't be done. It's an impossibility. We had no power to begin the Christian life, nor can we continue fellowshipping with God on our own power, by our own works. It's only by the grace of God in Christ that we enjoy life and peace with God. There's only one gospel that saves sinners. The apostolic message, that's the one that delivers us from this present evil age. It's the gospel of the risen Christ, proclaimed to us in the pages of the New Testament. This is the message, the gospel of God's love, the giving of the Son, the power of the Spirit for our salvation. Those who turn away from that gospel have no hope. But if we hold fast to the gospel then for us there is grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your gospel. 
It was all because of your, your love for us that you chose to save us. We can stand before you because Christ came. He gave himself for us. We can stand before you because the Spirit of God gave us new life and granted us faith to believe. The Spirit continually dwells within us, opening our eyes to our sin and to your grace and the truth of your word. We pray, Father, that we would not walk according to the flesh and fulfill the desires of the flesh, but we would walk by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We pray that we who have begun by grace would not seek to end with the law, but that we would continue living day by day in faith in you and your love for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.